This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Susan Stryker is an American author, filmmaker, theorist, and distinguished professor with a doctorate in United States history. She's also a longtime activist for the LGBTQ community, and she came out as transgender in the late 1980s and began transitioning in the early 1990s. A very different time to come of queer age than the time we find ourselves in right now. But with some similarities, too. Today, we'll talk about her book, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution, a complex and nuanced look at gender nonconformity in the last few centuries. We'll discuss some of the fragmentation and discord within the wide rainbow umbrella, the relationship between transgender women and certain types of feminists, and how we can better bridge some of our generational and ideological ideological gaps in order to, hopefully, gain a little more solidarity. Susan, it is so great to have you on our show. Thanks for joining us. It's so great to be here. We also have Miranda again today, our producer. Hi. Hello, everyone. Hello, Miranda. This is really exciting. Miranda and I have just so been enjoying your book, um, Transgender History, and So on that note, I would love to go back like pretty far to start here. Let's go back about 100 years to the turn of the 20th century. You write about this German sexologist named Magnus Hirschfeld. uh, And I had never heard of this person. And that felt surprising to me because once I started hearing your the information that you'd found on this person, I was my mind was kind of blown. He's kind of credited with starting the first organization dedicated to queer and trans rights. And Hitler also called him the most dangerous Jew in Germany. Um, Could you talk a little bit about his monumental work and uh, especially starting with that assertion he made that there are 43 million possible genders uh, and kind of how he got to that thinking? So um, Magnus Hirschfeld was, as you said, this, you know, very well uh, regarded, highly esteemed medical doctor who studied um, sexuality and gender. He founded this organization called the Scientific Humanitarian Committee back in 1890, 93, somewhere around there. And that was recognized as one of the maybe the very first um, organization to promote and advocate for sexual and gender diversity. And part of what Hirschfeld was saying was like, as a scientist and as a medical man, I, you know, look at the world and I see that sexuality and gender is diverse. That's just nature. And it is society that, you know, it's like in the name of a rational scientific society, it's like, 
our laws and social structures should accommodate this naturally existing diversity. And so the the argument was very much to say, in the name of science, we need to engage in progressive social reform. And, you know, he promoted things like, you know, abortion access and, you know, decriminalization of prostitution and all kinds of things. He wasn't just interested in sort of trans and gay issues. You know, he ran a big research institute in Berlin, the Institute for Sexual Science. He worked with the police to reform um, laws about cross-dressing. You know, he was kind of your classic liberal do-gooder. And as you mentioned, you know, he he was Jewish. Uh, He was a socialist. He was homosexual. He supported trans people. He had trans people working at the Institute for Sexual Science. He helped arrange some of the earliest hormonally and medically assisted gender transitions. Um, You know, I mean, he he was very influential. The other thing I was going to say about him is that, as you mentioned, Hitler called him the most dangerous Jew in Germany. He, He left Berlin in the early 1930s because of the rising tide of, of fascism there. He didn't feel safe and he, you know, his supporters and colleagues organized a world tour for him just to get him out of, of Germany. Uh, while he was away, the, the brown shirts, the sort of, you know, proto-Nazi vigilante thugs ransacked the Institute for Sexual Science, uh, those pictures you might have seen of brown shirt members of the SA throwing uh, books onto a bonfire in Berlin. Those are photos of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science, its library being burned. And so the the, um, the most famous pictures of Nazi book burnings are actually specifically targeting Hirschfeld's vast library on, you know, sort of the scientific study of sex, gender, diversity. But in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when when Hirschfeld was, you know, at the peak of his influence, you need to kind of keep in mind that this was right when um, the effects of hormones on the body was being discovered by the early endocrinologists. There were new sort of psychoanalytic theories about how like, well, you know, everybody is sort of like innately bisexual and gender identity is something that um, forms only sort of later in life. And we don't start out with a gender identity. And there's like many different possible pathways for becoming a viable human being. And so Hirschfeld's ideas were very typical of of that idea at, at the time, you know, sort of the idea that all human bodies exist on a sort of psychical as well as physiological spectrum. That doesn't necessarily mean that that idea of human sexuality and gender being on a spectrum was a good thing. You know, like it also informs ideas like by one of Hirschfeld's contemporaries, uh, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, who wrote this book called Psychopathia Sexualis, which was like the major sort of like psychiatric textbook or handbook in the late 19th and into the early 20th centuries. And that similarly has this idea of everything being on a a spectrum where like you've got, you know, manly man masculinity on one side and, you know, femi femme 
femaleness on the other end and everybody kind of being on a spectrum in between those things. But that craft epic thought of people moving away from the two poles of, you know, conventional heterosexual masculinity and femininity as a kind of inversion and a perversion, a kind of degeneracy. And so the the idea of a spectrum model, uh, I think, can be harnessed equally to progressive political ideas as well as very reactionary political ideas. It all depends on how you feel about people moving um, to places on the spectrum that are atypical, you know, rather than more usual. So yeah, anyway, Hirschfeld was, um, you know, was profoundly influential in the history of sexuality and gender. And the last thing I'll say about him is that, you know, while I certainly celebrate the things he did that I think were cool, you know, that there are also ways that some of his thinking um, fits into eugenic thought or, you know, have been um, appropriated by notions of European cultural superiority or even white supremacy, you know, that he's not, a, you know, I, I think a um, completely celebratory figure. It's like, on balance, I think he did all right. And he was also a creature of his time. Um, and I think there's some unfortunate um, tendencies in some of his work as well. We definitely seem to end up on our show back at eugenics a lot. You know, a lot of the people that we tended to admire uh, and simplify had their hand in eugenics and the progressive movement so had its hands in eugenics. So I'm not surprised to hear that about him. And as we like to say, uh, no heroes because everybody's got something, right? Um, But okay, so I would love to just move on a little bit to... uh, Hirschfeld's organization, the World League for Sexual Reform, uh, they were making some headway uh, in kind of the the trans queer rights space. But then something happened and it split into factions and the factions kind of looked like those who were more radical, who wanted to kind of take on the system as a whole, and then those who wanted to work within the current system. And I think we see these same types of rifts in our queer communities today. And it kind of seems like a lot of this type of rift has has been occurring in the whole history of the relationships between different communities. Can you speak to that at all? You know, I I think what happened with the World League for Sexual Reform, which is kind of like almost like a you know League of Nations for sexuality researchers. As I understand that history, it's like what they actually split over was the Russian Revolution, and that it was very specifically about are you in favor of you know communist world revolution or are you in favor of liberal capitalist democracy? And you know it's like that that was a a question that sexual scientists uh, differed on. And so it, you know, it, it, it blew up for political reasons, you know, I think more than for intellectual reasons. But, you know, you see these same kinds of splits um, today. You know, it's like, do we want to have rainbow flavored consumer capitalism and pride parades, you know, with like, you know, credit card companies saying like, hey, trans people, it's like, you can like create an added layer of you know, on your credit card, where it's like, even if you haven't legally changed your name, it's like, you know, you can put your name on the credit card. So sign up for MasterCard today. You know, it's like, 
that's one version of liberation. And another version is like saying like cops out of our neighborhoods, abolish the prison industrial complex. And, you know, it's just like, that's a, that's a really different version of liberation. So I, I think those kinds of divisions exist as long as there have been sort of political and social movements um, about gender and sexuality. You know, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's related to what, what people's own understanding of the kind of society that they want to live in. You know, if people's idea of the good life is that you've got a good paying job, you know, you get two weeks of vacation, you know, you've got health insurance. And if you've got that, then, you know, basically all you want to do is like buy more cool stuff. Or do you want to say, I want to live in a world that, you know, doesn't exploit the labor of other people where there is no structural racism you know, it's like, what, you know, what's, what's the, what's the vision of the society that you want to live in? And that those different visions are going to express themselves in, you know, LGBT social movements. So we don't, just because we're all some stripe of queer doesn't mean we necessarily share the same vision of what the good life is or what should be done. Is that related at all to what you talk about when you talk about queer nationalism? Yeah, you know, I mean, like, I don't think nationalism is a really good model for liberation. You know, I mean, nationalism, as I understand the term, you know, it's about saying there is a people who are the right people to occupy a particular territory that properly belongs to them, and other people are foreigners or guests or invaders, and there is like a right kind of person to be on the land, you know, and like that's the kind of imaginary, the kind of, you know, like vision of one's place in history that leads to ethnic cleansing. It's like, that's like behind the Israel-Palestine question. It, you know, it's like, it's at play in the Balkans and Eastern Europe. It's at play in any kind of settler colonial society. So it's behind anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-migrant rhetoric. Just that that sense of we are the people who are here and we have strong boundaries and borders. Um, that's nationalism, and I just don't I don't think that the queer queer people should emulate that as a, a model for queer liberation. You know, at all. And I I know you know that we were talking about some of the conflicts between uh, trans people and certain versions of feminism. And it's like, I think that also involves a kind of nationalist mindset. You know, it's like, it's thinking of woman as a territory, you know, that is properly occupied by people who have a certain kind of body who are rightfully, you know, entitled to be there rather than thinking of woman as a political category, as a category that's related to say the patriarchal oppression of femininity or control of reproduction and that, you know, the boundaries of woman are always fuzzy and can't be separated from larger kinds of, you know, political, social, cultural questions. But that very kind of biologistic belief that having a certain kind of body is what entitles you to occupy the space of woman, the territory of woman, you know, but, but, um, you know, it's like, it's that same, same imaginary 
You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American can hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. That's an amazing way to put it. That actually leads perfectly into what I hope we can talk about, um, as you mentioned. So one huge clash that we have right now is between trans people and TERFs or trans exclusionary radical feminists. Uh, Some of our listeners may not have heard this term or may be a little confused about what it means. So would you mind telling us what a TERF is and maybe a little bit of a history of this rift between trans exclusionary trans exclu- <laughs> between trans exclusionary radical feminists and trans people um especially in regards to this story that i also didn't know from your book uh the relationship between beth elliott and robin morgan it was a word that was coined by a cisgender radical feminist who was um supportive of trans people as being part of a broader feminist movement, but she wanted to distinguish herself from other radical feminists who were, you know, not so cool and keen on the trans question. And so she came up with that acronym of like, I'm a radical feminist, but then there are trans exclusive radical feminists, T-E-R-F. And people who are described by that term and like people who consider themselves feminists who are transphobic or you know anti-transgender they say turf is a slur it's like don't call me that but it's like eh, in my opinion it's just like well it's just a neutrally descriptive term for people who consider themselves feminists and don't like trans people so they can get banana shape about that if they want to um but uh, to me it does seem like it it is a, a useful term but you know, and the, the the one of the things I want to hasten to to add is that you're know, like I consider myself a feminist. You know, just like I think feminism is about recognizing 
that gender as a social system typically oppresses women, uh, that it denigrates, uh, devalues, disparages femininity, uh, and that it is about the control of reproductive capacity, you know, and and that, that I think any of us who have a stake in overturning those, you know, those oppressions, it's like, let's call ourselves feminists. And it's like, you know, if we're, if we're against the same thing and coming from similar places, it's like, aren't we on the same team? You know, I, I, I remember um, um, a story that my friend Kate Bornstein told me years and years ago about going to um, the Women's March in Washington, D.C. This is back in the 90s. And she was wearing this T-shirt that said, keep your dirty laws off my body. And this cisgender woman who was there, who recognized Kate as being trans, looks at that T-shirt and says, it's like, that's not talking about you, you know? And it's sort of like, oh, well, I don't know. Wouldn't trans people, regardless of their reproductive capacity, have a common stake in not being oppressively regulated by a state apparatus that put them in a sort of subordinated position you know like why not have that uh, you know the coalitional politics of everybody who has a common stake in resisting a particular form of oppression gathering around you know like that's what leslie feinberg had in mind when they wrote um transgender liberation a movement whose time has come it's like leslie used that word transgender to mean like all people who are minoritized and oppressed on the basis of gender, you know, not like a particular identity called a transgender person. And so, you know, my, my own sense of feminist politics is very much in that sense of coalition and alliance uh, based work rather than, you know, what I was calling like a gender nationalism, you know, that there is one particular kind of person who is the proper you know, object of uh, feminist politics, that feminism belongs to a certain kind of person. You know, anybody can act in a feminist way. Anybody who's oppressed by gender inequalities and works to overturn that, it's like, I think we could call that a feminist politics. So, you know, I, I am not harshing on feminism. Like I said, I consider myself to be one. While at the same time, you know, like we were talking about with Magnus Hirschfeld, you know, you take the good with the bad. And there have certainly been some bad things done in the name of feminism. Back to your, Mm -hmm. you know, eugenics question. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, feminist access to, you know, control of one's own reproductive capacity. Uh, It's like mm, abortion access, birth control, have also had eugenic um, elements Mm -hmm. to it, you know, who should be able to reproduce, who gets to exercise agency around questions of biological reproduction, you know, who's, who's sterilized and who's not, you know, like something that can, the, the very same thing that can be profoundly liberating and enabling for one person can be you know, uh, can be horrific, you know, and, and, and disempowering, uh, and violent for another person. So it's, you know, feminism is like that. I mean, feminism has been a way that like white middle-class women have like, you know, practiced a kind of, you know, victim rescue feminism mm-hmm. that imagines, you know, 
women in other parts of the world is in need of saving, you know, in, the, in ways that can just reproduce colonialism. And that there are some people, you know, who want to say, oh, no, feminism just good. You know, that's why they want to use acronyms like feminism appropriating radical transphobes. But, I, you know, I actually, I'm fine with like calling people who I vehemently disagree with, who I consider to be transphobic feminists. It's like, yeah, there's a certain, you know, that is a version of feminism. So, you know, I want to wage my struggle, you know, on the ground of feminism and talking about different different ways that people can be feminist and different, you know, feminist visions of society and of futurity and not saying like, oh, well, anybody that I disagree with over feminism isn't really a feminist. Like to me, like that's just sort of the flip side of wanting to have a kind of, you know, purity politics or like taking taking up all the turf for my myself and my position rather than admitting that nope this very ground is is contested um, but the um, the the specific question you ask about Beth Elliott and Robin Morgan for your listeners who don't know that story Beth was um, a transsexual lesbian who was active in the women's movement, active in the lesbian community, active in the early women's music scene in late 1960s, early 1970s. And it's around this time that, you know, what I will just call the paranoid conspiracy theory of trans people starts to take shape, you know, where, you know, I think of it being kind of like QAnon today, you know, or like the stuff that, you know, the old historian Richard Hofstadter wrote about in his book, the mm-hmm. Parent or his article, The Paranoid Style one. of yeah, American Politics, right? You know, which is that there is this fantasy figure that is constructed of the trans woman as the evil, deceitful, disruptive infiltrator who intends harm and, you know, who's like very presence is some kind of violation that must be, you know, forcibly repudiated and and cast out. You know, it's like, it's the same kind of fantasy that informed, you know, anti-communist hysteria in the Cold War, you know, informs a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric. It's those people who are like sneaking in and like doing something inappropriate and they shouldn't be here. I sort of think of it as like the, the underbelly, the flip side of democratic republican forms of 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 governance you know that when you when you start talking about the people you know that there are all kinds of disagreements about who the people are and that uh it's very easy to get caught up in these kinds of racialist fantasies about you know who is a proper member of the body politic and who is the unwelcome intruder and who has the right to be here. And so it's that same kind of mentality that you saw in some pockets of lesbian separatist communities in the early 1970s. You know, that at this moment where a lot of, you know, I'll say mostly white lesbian feminists were embracing separatism at that moment as a kind of you know, like, I kind of, I get it, you know, like the idea of like, wait, we just kind of need to retreat. We like need to have our own space. We need to work some stuff out among ourselves. It's like, I don't have any political problem with people sort of like 
strategically re- retreating, you know, and, you know, kind of going off by themselves to work some stuff out and develop their thought without having to deal with opposition, you know, from some outside force. It's like, you know, that everybody needs a breather. But those spaces, those separatist spaces, I think, at the same time, they become ways of tacitly excluding some people. It's like who is who who is separating from what? Who's inside the circle and who's outside the circle? And so even I think that the very idea of separatism stages questions about belonging, you know, who's one of us and who's not. And that often the 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 criteria for determining who's us and who's not us are tacit, you know, they're assumptions that they're not formally stated and that separatism has a way of bringing out these kinds of buried sets of beliefs or, you know, what I would call political imaginaries. And this is very much what came to the surface in the early 1970s in um, a lot of lesbian feminist political organizing, much of which, you know, I'm, you know, I'm very celebratory of. But at the same time, this question of like, well, who's a woman? came to the foreground and that there were people who engaged in what I really considered to be like paranoid conspiratorial thinking who wanted to make trans women involved in the women's movement a particularly, you know, bad kind of evil deceiver and nefarious person with bad intent. Uh, And that this all came to a head for the, the first time on a national scale in 1973 at what was then the largest gathering of lesbians in U.S. history at a, the West Coast Lesbians Conference in uh, on the UCLA campus. And that Beth Elliott, this trans woman who had been, you know, kind of like happily, cheerfully, you know, doing her feminist work and being part of women's community, starts to be targeted by transphobes, you know, including someone that she had known in college, somebody that she had felt very friendly with, who as this, this friend, um, Bev Jo Dorn, um, started taking on more of a lesbian separatist identity. She seems to have felt the need to renounce her previous um, connection with Beth and went on the attack. She was part of a a group called the Gutter Dykes Collective, and the Gutter Dykes made it their mission to try to, you know, get Beth kicked out of organizations to protest her involvement at the West Coast Lesbian Conference, which she had actually helped organize. There was this really horrible moment where, like, after they raised the issue of whether or not Beth should be able to participate, they took a vote. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like saying. It's like, let's take a vote. Should minorities have civil rights? You know, yes or no? It's kind of like, so, you know, Beth is here. Let's take a vote. Is she welcome or is she not welcome? And two thirds of the people who were there voted to like, like, sure, like she's here, you know, she's like right, right on sister. But there was a minority that was very, very motivated and wanting her to be gone. And they they said that they would disrupt conference if Beth continued to participate. So like after performing 
one set on the stage as a musician, Beth left the conference and was devastated by that. And then the next day, when Robin Morgan, who was the keynote speaker, she took all of the talking points from the Gutter Dykes you know, campaign against Beth Elliott and incorporated that into her keynote speech. Now, one of the things that I find really remarkable about Robin Morgan is that she was married to a man with whom she had a kid. You know, she was not a lesbian separatist in that sense. She embraced this position that was at the time called political lesbianism, like the idea in um, the radical lesbians, um, you know, manifesto of the woman identified woman that said lesbianism is the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion. And so the idea of lesbianism as a political vanguard was very current at that time. And people would say like, I'm a lesbian in a political sense, even if they're having sex with men or married to men or attracted to men. And that was Robin Morgan. So it's, it's really perverse that she could be that person who would then target other people as like, not really lesbians or women, pretty sketch, pretty sus, I would have to say. Um, as the kids say. As the kids say today. <laughs> Granny Tranny's keeping up on the old lingo, here, right? So um, that incident in 1973 at the Lesbian Conference was where I first see the, let's call it the discourse, the paranoid fantasy of the infiltrating trans woman who wants to destroy feminism from within and poses an inherent risk to to girls, cisgender girls and women. It's like, that's the first time I see that particular fantasy being said out loud in public. And then it, you know, comes to be elaborated most forcefully by this woman named Janice Raymond, who was a professor, a philosophy professor, an ethicist who taught at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And she wrote this book called um, Transsexual Empire, which was the making of the she-male. And, you know, it's this full-blown thing of like, I mean, swear to God, like Nazis invented transsexuals in the concentration camp by experimenting on Jews. And like they're now they're like loose in society and like they look like women, but they're little Nazi thimbots who are trying to infiltrate everything that is progressive and we must resist them at all costs. She actually says in the book, transsexualism must be morally mandated out of existence. Charming. Ooh. Charming, yeah. <laughs> sounds sounds like a fun fun lady. She was, yeah, but you know, she she didn't <laughs> necessarily want to. She didn't want to kill trans people. She thought they should all go to reeducation camp. You know, that was compassionate. So because reeducation um, camps always been historically a great idea. Exactly, exactly. And so you know, I I have to say, you know, I I was born in the '60s. I was kind of like coming into consciousness in the '70s. I was in college and grad school in the '80s, and then like you know, it's like in the later. 80s, I'm starting to come out as trans. I mean, I'd felt that way all my life, but starting to get more plugged into communities and starting to become public transition in the early 90s. And at that time, it's like this kind of feminist transphobia had become like the dominant way to think about trans people from a feminist perspective. And it was only then in the early 90s with the emergence of a new transgender movement that 
those questions got reframed. And I I have spent the past for, for like 25 years or so, you know, I would say that I just had this now naive belief that that old school transphobia was this idea that came out of a specific place in a specific time, but that, you know, kids today were like hip to the scene and that was regarded as something old and out of date and messed up and et cetera, et cetera. Well, imagine my surprise, you know, I would say, mm, I kind of date this like around 2011, 12, 13, somewhere around there, that you started to see this whole new revitalization of that old transphobic feminist discourse that had certainly seemed to be on the wane for a long time. And it starts to be picked up by people who are not just self-styled feminists, but some like really reactionary people, like people involved in ethno-nationalist populist movements and Russia and in Eastern Europe or in like reactionary factions of governments in South America, people like Jair Bolsonaro um, in Brazil, that it's like why I pay attention to those questions about ethno-nationalism and thinking about this idea of like woman is a territory that has a right kind of body to occupy it and trans people are the infiltrators and like how that is like kind of the same fantasy of like being anti-immigrant or notions of ethnic cleansing. It's like that that idea of trans people as a kind of um, secret agent of like secular humanist values infiltrating traditional societies. It's like it became really useful for these larger reactionary political projects. It wasn't just like a tiny little turf war, you know, between some lesbian feminists and some trans people, but that that talking point about the nefariousness of trans people as agents of a suspect political ideology who want to destroy life for right thinking, right living people. It's like that got a whole new lease on life in the context of the political climate today, like the same things that contribute to the rise of Trumpism or Terte in the Philippines or Modi in India or Putin in Russia, Boris Johnson in the UK. There's this resurgence of anti-democratic, reactionary populist movements, and that transphobia is like been woven into that now. I mean, and that that is huge, you know. So this thing that I thought was actually disappearing as a kind of anachronism is now like back in full force and has even more dangerous political bedfellows. Um, it's become um, something much bigger. And something that, like, I think puts trans issues, like, right at the heart of contemporary p- political struggle and, you know, struggles for social transformation. It's like, if you're not dealing with the trans question, it's like, you're not taking away a talking point from the enemies, or you're reproducing their bad faith characterization of trans people. So trans issues are a really specific thing that affects, a you know, a small minority of people, but it's... It's become one of the frontline battles of, of the culture wars. So I think it behooves all of us who share a vision of a diversity and inclusion and freedom and liberation and, you know, just like 
everybody should have enough before anybody has too much and being, you know, anti-structural violence, you know, anti-racist. It's like, if you're committed to those kinds of things, it's like, you got to deal with the trans issue now. It's like, you need to, you need to have your chops on that. We've talked about many times on the show, many different uh, iterations of this unfortunate union that can happen sometimes between feminism and conservative politics. They sometimes find things in common. And I think things like the bathroom bill, we're seeing that same weird union where people we would consider feminists who are not who are now having the same opinions as some of the most conservative people in the country. And so I see that as another Another fracture that's happening that that seems unfortunate. Um, and okay, so as an I'm an out non-binary person, I'm in my 30s, and I think the riffs I'm seeing a lot, and I'm saying this like the riffs on Twitter. Like I don't, I think real life is very different than the internet, and yet that is where our discourse occurs, right? So, mm-hmm. as a non-binary person who is pretty involved, I sometimes have difficulty keeping up with this ever-changing language around gender, sexuality, and identity. Um, And I know that you have watched language change tremendously over the course Mm -hmm. of your life and your career. And so I... I hoped maybe you could give us some insight or some idea of a path that you can see toward different generations of people who perhaps haven't quite gotten on the same page yet, but there's potential there, right? And the different and different identities as well, um, not just different ages, but people who who identify in different ways. Is is there a way that you see to strengthen solidarity and learn from each other? Yeah, well, you know, I, I would say, of course, it's really important that people be respectfully addressed. That's just like basic human kindness. And I also think it's polite that people should be called what they want to be called. But then the thing I would say on the flip side of that is that I think that struggling too much over particular names and words, it's like can be very counterproductive you know and that like there's this there's this joke that you know sort of like the the smaller the stakes the more vicious the fighting you know or that like particularly like people who feel really socially disempowered for whatever reason it's like you want to like reach out and hit the thing that's closest to you that you can actually reach not the thing that is out of reach and so you know, you and me, like, we're not going to be able to walk up to Steve Bannon or somebody and just, you know, bitch slapping, you know, we're (laughs) not going to be able to do that. But if like, somebody in your class at college uses the wrong pronoun, it's like, man, you can just like jump right down their throat because they're sitting right there. Right. It's like, Mm. and so the feeling of being disrespected, the awareness of being in a society that like doesn't get you and isn't organized for you. It's like, that's all totally real, but no horizontal hostility, I guess is what I'm saying. It's like, I think as much as quote unquote mainstream society, like really needs to step up its game and like take trans and non-binary gender diversity issues more seriously, like not treated as a joke, But I think people who identify somewhere in that gender spectrum, trans, non-binary, gender, queer, agender, what have you, you know, that there's a way that people should, you know, to use another acronym, CTFO, 
you know, just uh, chill the fuck out and and pay attention to what people's intent is. It's like if somebody like you can tell like somebody is like trying to mess with you or like not taking you seriously or disrespecting you. It's like, of course, if you feel like it's okay, you know, you're going to be safe, you know, and stepping up and resisting that by all means do so. But if somebody is just like well-intentioned and they're fumbling and you can tell that it's not, they're not trying to do you harm, cut them some slack, man. That's how you build community. Yeah, there's a lot of potential allyship there, right? And that we don't want to lose uh, because we're requiring a certain level of of perfection from people. And punching horizontally was one of the best terms I've, I've really heard. And I think that is something that we really agree with here at American Hysteria is those who are trying are worth uh, engaging with. Those who are genuinely trying are worth engaging with. Um, doesn't mean you have to, but... I think if if you're the type of person who can uh, can help another person understand something, then that is a huge um, win for your activism. So, wow, you have been such a wonderful guest, Susan. Yay! Is there anything else that you're working on that you would like to tell us about or tell us where people can find your work? Uh, you know, um, no, you know, I mean, I mean, yes, I'm working on stuff, but um, yeah, but yeah, check out um, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. Uh, there's a film I made that 15 years ago that's still getting some traction called Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. I'm um, currently teaching at Mills College in Oakland, California. Um, and part of my my responsibilities there is the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership. That's my title. Uh, as I run a, a, a monthly um, trans studies speakers series that'll be starting up again in September during the academic year. So check that out if you have a chance. And um yeah, you know, I just try to try to stay busy, you know, stirring up trouble, <laughs> dropping my little Janie Appleseed knowledge bombs whenever I can and hoping that, you know, it will it will grow into something that nourishes people. So thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for all of your work over all of these years, too. I mean, we we definitely our younger generation owes a lot to you and, and those who who came before us. Uh, well, that's nice of you to say so. Thank you, Susan. Take care and uh, we'll see you around. OK, bye. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you pick up a copy of Susan's vital book, Transgender History. Next time on the show. We'll have a fantastically strange and passionate interview with comedian Chris Gethard, where we talk about dangerous American water parks and roadside attractions, analyze urban legends, and even hear about how he became an evil figure in our most recent satanic panic. That's coming in two weeks. If you love our show, consider becoming a patron. I just released an episode of our patrons-only podcast, Walk With Me, that is a compliment to this episode, where I share more of my own thoughts on the topic. Head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or the link in our bio. Big Patreon announcement coming soon. In the meantime, follow us on social media, Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast and Twitter at Amer Hysteria. 
This episode has sound by ClearCommo Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler. I hope you've had a good month and that you were able to find yourself a non-corporately exploitive pride. Have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.